Well, open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter will be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Well, for as long as there have been wars, there have been war speeches. It was Churchill who said to the House of Commons, as the French retreated from Hitler, you got one team on retreat, and he meant something different for his own. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all our strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark Lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. War speeches. They're needed in times of war to commend a sense of urgency, perspective, to commission those who hear, and even to strangely, in the midst of such times, encourage them to take courage. Let's read now from chapter 1, 4 verses 1 through 6, a war speech. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, I suppose on first reading on a normal day, uh, when we don't have all the perspective that we ought, that Peter means to commend to us here, we'll read this passage and be really excited to figure out what a few things mean, like what does it mean whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Ceased from sin? Uh, what does it mean that this gospel was preached even to those who are dead? And uh, I can promise you we'll cross those bridges when we get there. But those insights that we will gain will only serve to strengthen our own sense that our greatest problem is not a tricky verse here and there, but our greatest problem is our own temptation and our temptations in the face of the trials that we face. Even, Even less expectedly, our greatest problem is that we are often easily lulled to sleep in thinking that we are not actually not actually at war, that we are not actually under attack. But friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that we are at war. The United States is in an unusual place. Uh, We are flanked on both sides with giant oceans. Uh, That's good for us. We have to our north and to our south, more or less, mostly, if not entirely friendly, Nations, 
They gave us trouble of different kinds or don't bother us at all. The Canada, I love the meme that speaks of Canada as America's hat. Uh, when Canada is America's hat in your meme and you chuckle, you've got a decent relationship. Well, even after 9-11, when some war was brought to our own soil, pretty much since then, we have taken it across the ocean. And so we've had trouble getting out of Afghanistan, and there's much to make of that. You can puzzle about it and think on it and be a good citizen and form your own conclusions as to when and how that kind of a thing ought to happen. It's not my It's more my hobby as a citizen, as it is with you, than it is my expertise. But it's nice that it was over there for the last 20 years. Although that's just to say that the United States is in an interesting and an unusual place. We don't have memories of invasions at our borders not so far away and not so long ago. These are also interesting and unusual times. Uh, Throughout human history, warfare would have meant putting on your armor. Uh, in more recent history, it would have meant arming bombs, arming bombers. It could still mean those kinds of things, both again. More lately, it means arming the code, programming. Cyber warfare is a new and real, even if not the only, landscape of war in our times. We haven't exactly known how to go about it. I don't know what they call it, but the doctrine of cyber warfare is an evolving thing. In the U.S., at first, our purpose was to be as good as we could at defending ourselves in cyberspace, not knowing exactly what escalation would look like, but it has become plain, apparently, to our our military leaders or whoever's involved in this kind of thing that offense is needed. And so we hear something about a flash in the news about Iran's nuclear reactors having trouble, becoming defunct, don't know exactly how it worked, don't know exactly who did it, but they got them. And at least for a time, this wasn't something we'd be even willing to acknowledge we had done. So, so in years past, in wars past, You get news of a bomb, you get news of disruption, you can take pictures of it, you can see it, you can hear about it. This kind of thing is almost invisible. These are interesting and unusual times. And it means that we are in some ways, as a nation, vulnerable in ways we don't immediately perceive. Others know more than I do about these things, and I'm glad. And we can thank God for the hard work of government officials and others that they contract and many others who are busy keeping American citizens and American soil safe. So in some ways, the war that Peter addresses is quite different than the kinds of things that we have dealt with in the past. On the other hand, it's, it's an invisible war. This one's easy not to notice. It's easy to, to forget we're in the middle of it. He writes to arrest us, to arrest our attention in order that we would be firmly resolved to fight, to communicate to us his understanding, which is Jesus's understanding of the Christian life, and that it is a life of firm resolve. As we follow Jesus, we follow Jesus to a cross. 
We follow Jesus in fighting. We follow Jesus in a life of warfare, spiritual warfare. And today we get a bit of a look at what that involves. What Peter's given us here is a war speech. He's given us much hope in this book so far. I've argued that the the overall thrust of the book is that of encouragement. So it's a book largely about our suffering, but the goal isn't to talk about suffering. It's to encourage us in the midst of suffering of various kinds, including the kind of suffering that is on account of our association with Jesus himself. But no, this hope isn't a hope because there is no trouble. It's a hope in the face of trouble. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 11. I just want to show you how this has been on the page before, this sense of urgency, even in the midst of bright encouragement. It says in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you, see the urgency in his voice, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. What do they do? Which wage war against your soul. And we've seen our own passage today. Now turn to 5, verse 7. We're to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And in verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. And later he'll say in verse 12, stand firm. You can turn back to our passage. So in the middle of a book that is giving us great encouragement and a hope, and I pray you're feeling all of that, it is not an encouragement and a hope because there is no trouble about us. It's not an encouragement or hope that removes the trouble about us. In case, it, in fact, our hope in Jesus can increase that trouble. It can bring us trouble, as we'll see. But it is a hope and an encouragement that stands up in the face of all trouble. This today is a war speech which communicates to us a matter of urgency. It gives us perspective. It charges us and it fills us with motivation to move. For in the context of getting a war speech, it is not so much that you need the details of what your mission requires. It is that you need the motivation and the heart to get on about it. And so Peter gives that to us. Not so long ago, uh, Donald Rumfeld, Secretary of Defense uh, in years past, in fact, he was the United States' youngest Secretary of Defense at one time, and then in a later administration, the oldest Secretary of Defense. He knew a good bit about foreign policy. In a famous speech, he spoke about uh, three different types of knowledge, known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. Uh, There are known knowns. Uh, China has uh, an aircraft carrier. There's one. There are known unknowns. How does that aircraft carrier uh, perform in certain specific conditions? Well, someone knows that. We don't. And then there are unknowns, unknown unknowns. Those things no one knows. When will they give up? When will a regime change? 
When will they change their strategy? Not even the enemy knows the answer to those questions, and neither do we. And in foreign policy and dealing with an enemy, it's important to to know what you know, to know what you don't know, and then to know what you can't know. Well, there's some things that we can know from the start, even from this command, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. And I'd just put it simply to you that, friend, you are not at home. You are on foreign soil. Elect exiles. You have a citizenship that is meaningful, but you are not at home where you are at. You're not at home. You're, you're hunted where you're at. You're vulnerable. And you are called to resolve. Resolve. So arm yourselves. We've got a few things we're going to deal with today. We've got some things to prepare. We've got something to prepare for. And we've got something to leave to God. We're going to consider, alternatively, what this war demands, what it will cost, and for our encouragement, how we know it will end and why that matters. Well, let's get about it. In the first place, a command for you, something to prepare. Friends, get your minds ready. Get your minds ready. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Some quick initial observations before we reflect more on this. An observation about salvation and then about scripture, about salvation. If the Lord has saved you and if you're in Christ today, you are vulnerable. You are weak. You don't always think like you should. Sometimes you think the wrong things. Sometimes you see the world the wrong way. Sometimes you want the wrong things. Be encouraged. (laughs) Be encouraged, not because it's encouraging to know uh, you're a sinner still. But it is, because you know you are. And in that sense, in that limited sense, nothing is wrong with you. In other words, everyone else in the room is a sinner too. Everyone else in the room who is in Christ, who has been redeemed, who has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, as we've said, remains a sinner like you. So if you have recently come to Christ and God has recently brought you into his kingdom and you find within yourself your old desires and old wants and within your mind your old ways of thinking and seeing things, well, that is how it goes in this age. And so you need to be on guard and you need to arm yourself with a certain way of thinking and we will get there. But just know where we're all starting. Peter speaks these things to Christians in the first century because those Christians in that age have the same problem that we do. We are not always so resolute. We are not always on our guard. We are often aloof and asleep. And if you can say that about yourself at times, not on Sunday while the preacher is preaching, of course. You've never seen me do that. Well, then you can know that you're not alone. An observation about scripture. This passage here is a passage in the Bible about how we're supposed to live. So verse two, so to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer according to human passions, but for the will 
of God. Gentiles, verse 3, they live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness. This is a passage about, in some ways, the Christian life. What's interesting in this larger passage, as this is instructive for us, is that we have one command, one imperative. Arm yourself. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And this is instructive for us to learn what we need. This Lord's Day, given to this passage, apparently you and I need one command and we need a whole lot of help to understand why that's so important and to how to get about obeying it. We need reasoning. We need reasons. We need encouragement. We need perspective on the future. We need someone to talk to us about what to think about what other people think about us. All of that. And Peter will give it to us. He doesn't give us just a nice, tidy list of get-tos. He gives us his heart. He gives us perspective. He gives us this passage. And it's instructive that a passage about how to live comes with only one command here at the head and a lot of reasoning. So tend to the reasons. As you come to God's word on the Lord's day, listen for the commands, but listen, listen, listen for the reasons. There's no leaving this room and keeping commands apart from believing all the way down the reasons that we are given. That's a bit of a reflection on salvation and the nature of scripture. Now let's look here at this command. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Get your minds ready. Have a resolute mind, a determined, focused, armed way of thinking. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. What same way? Whose way of thinking? Well, this is not difficult. Verse 1 says, Therefore, as Christ suffered, therefore in the flesh. And even in yesterday's passage, last week's passage, which you'll turn there with me and look from verse 18 forward, we see the glorious work of Jesus, including his death in verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and his body, but made alive in the spirit. And then he goes on to preach about the victory of Jesus over death and his enemies, which he proclaimed. And in verse 22, says that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so we ended our last chapter in sermon with hearts filled with encouragement, with the knowledge that Jesus reigns and that he was vindicated after he was crucified. And so we too will be vindicated. And where we have to subject ourselves to imperfect, even cruel rulers and leaders of various kinds, all things are ultimately subjected to him. And so we're in good hands. But he makes this move now to chapter 4 after having inspired us and lifted our spirits and encouraged us now to arrest us with the situation that we're in. For since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, in his body, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And so this is the series we've said where we are elect exiles. We're following Jesus in a a kind of a double life. We're elect and chosen of God, but we're rejected down here, just like 
Jesus, just like Jesus, as Jesus. And in this case, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, you therefore arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. There's no way to follow Christ apart from going with him, from being with him, from tracking with him, from being united to him. And as he calls us to follow him, he calls us to follow him to the cross where we find forgiveness, but then through a cross of our own where we suffer for his sake. In the same way as what? As Christ, there is a way in which our suffering is like his suffering. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking about what? Apparently, there's something dangerous about not thinking the right things, not thinking the right thoughts. Arm yourselves. We're vulnerable. If you don't think the right way about suffering, you could get yourself killed. Not physically, spiritually. You could lose your faith if you don't understand what it is exactly Jesus has called you to. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking about suffering. Let's reflect on this. Well, in the first place, how ought we to think about suffering? Very, very important. Very, very important. Your suffering is temporary. It is temporary. It is not forever. It is only for now. You look at Christ's suffering. We just read about it from verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring them to God, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. He came for a time and then he suffered and he was done suffering. And so too, our own suffering is for a time. And Peter makes this point to us over and over again. Be comforted to know that whatever suffering he's called you to in this life, he calls us to follow him and to suffer in his steps. And whatever that looks like for you is a temporary matter. Verse 2 here, so as to live, we've suffered in the flesh and ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. You think of chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, this hope, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And there in five, chapter 5, verse 6, we have another reminder along these lines. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, there's a certain time that we found ourselves in, and Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so in verse 7, he can say, the end of all things is at hand. That's the next line in next week's sermon. The end of all things is at hand. Through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he's put up the tombstone for the old creation. And if you're joined to him, you've come out the other side, joined to Jesus with a new life, a part of a new creation, a new humanity. The old is passing away. The new has come. And this age, these last days in which we find ourselves, is only a little while, all things considered. Not that Jesus will come back tomorrow, but that this age is not forever. And that should be a matter of huge encouragement to us. 
Christ's suffering was temporary and our suffering is temporary. Just a little while. Don't let that slip past you. It's not just how Peter decided to put it. He is over and again reminding us that this doesn't last forever. So when you're having trouble, friend, when you're having trouble, remember that it's just for now. That's temporary. Well, the second thing you need to know about your suffering, your trials in this age, is that they are productive. Verse 1, second half, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. All right, there it is. We've come to a bridge. How will we get over the bridge? Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, he's not saying here that suffering is a means of salvation, that you suffer, and if you suffer enough, you stop sinning, and then God saves you. Now, maybe that's how you've thought about salvation before, that There must be a God in heaven and he must be holy and I've got guilt and trouble. And so if I, if I deny myself and I harm myself even, or if I suffer, uh, surely God will pay me back for that. Acknowledge that count that as a kind of righteousness. Well, that is not how salvation works. The righteous died for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. Jesus's righteousness and his suffering is all that you need to be brought to God. So what does he mean here? Whoever has suffered in the flesh, in the body, has ceased from sin. Well, I think he's saying roughly what he has said in other places. He's walking a fine line. He's not saying that suffering is inherently good. He's not even saying that suffering is inevitable. Although his readers experience suffering, and we experience suffering of various kinds. I think he's saying something like what he did in chapter 1. I just read this a few moments ago. In this hope you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then what about those? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you don't now see him, you love him. And though you don't now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This early encouragement from Peter's letter told us in our hard times that our trials are productive. They're productive like fire is productive to purify gold. There's a certain kind of trial that is productive for our faith. God is about using our suffering in order to purify our faith. Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now the reader says, now Peter, did you mean that whoever suffers in the body in this life uh, doesn't sin anymore? No, listen, he's giving us these commands because we struggle with sin. His readers do, he does there's some of Peter's own sins on the, on the page of Galatians and elsewhere in the New Testament. There's no reason to read this as an absolute principle. We read it in context. There is, isn't this true to our own experience? Isn't it true that as a Christian, 
as you go through hardship, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of a job or a friend or a family member's affection on account of your, your walk with Christ, isn't it true that your trials are productive for strengthening your faith? That you love God more when in his providence you have to lose things to find out you still have him and how valuable he is when you lose things for his sake or when you lose things in this life that you loved and now your attention isn't there, but on him. Oh, meet a saint who is filled with joy, whose faith is pure and you will get a story of hard times and difficulties. So take courage, be encouraged. Your hard times are not lost. Your trials and your suffering is temporary and it's also profoundly, profoundly productive. And in this way, our suffering is different than Jesus' suffering. So Jesus suffered to bring us to God. But our suffering is used of God to turn us toward him. Jesus' suffering was a punishment from God for sin, not his, ours. Your suffering is not a punishment from God. Your sin is a matter of how your faith will be purified so that you can see him and love him all the more. Be encouraged that your suffering is temporary and it's productive. Just consider, friends, that the, the brand of Christianity is a is a cross. I was speaking with someone in marketing this week and um, he was saying, what is a brand? And I thought, I can do this. It's a logo. No, Uh, no, I wouldn't say that out loud in front of a brand specialist. It can't be that. I thought it's a message. Uh, I'm not going to say that out loud because if I thought of it first, he wouldn't ask. I'm not that smart. No, it's a promise. Well, that's good. If you walked to the grocery store and you had all those breads, too many breads. Actually, this is how I wish it was. I wish they all looked the same. All the kind I want. But all the bread, there wasn't any logos or branding on it. You wouldn't have any sense of what you would be taking home. Now, the brand holds out to you a promise of a certain experience. This is how it's going to go if you take me, take me, take me. That's what the grocery store is. It's take me all the way up and down those aisles. That's why I don't go to the grocery store. I just go to the fridge. It's like way easier. And then there's the pantry is great too. I don't get people. Oh, it's a promise. Here's how it's going to go. What's the, what's the logo for Christianity? Well, actually, it's interesting. We aren't actually given a sign, but if you were to pick one, and you could pick a couple. Be a cross. And there at the cross, an instrument of torture and death, we have a promise of forgiveness. We do. And at the cross, we have a call to die. We have a call to give our lives for the one who gave his life for us. We have a call to fight. Christians in the first century, 50 AD, Claudius 
exiled Christians from Rome and uh, took their property. In 64 and 65 AD, Nero started killing Christians. And Christians have had it better and worse at different times. And you may have had it on the better side. And we can thank God for our earthly blessings as the secondary effects of the gospel spill over in this age, in this place in which we live, which is more hospitable than most have been to our way of life. But that is not promised for us. And I would be wrong to invite you to come to Christ, the cross for forgiveness, without calling you to carry your cross and to lay your own life down for the one who laid his life down for you. And not because he, he needs it in some kind of exchange, but because he is that worth it. And it may cost our kids more than it costs us. But in any case, this is the good news we preach. It is this good. It is worth giving our lives to have. Selling all to buy the field. Be willing to do it, friends. Our brand is a cross. And we do offer the blessing of forgiveness. And we offer blessing as a result of persecution. Well, what is this battle over exactly that we are in? What's the battle over? Well, one way to answer that is to say the battle is over you. It's not over territory. It's not over land. It's not over property. It's over you. Who will possess you? Your life, your affections, your will. Get your mind ready. And Christian, get your conduct ready. We moved to verses two through three. Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Peter gives us uh, what we might call a sampling. It's a sampler like they have at Costco. Those are the best. Jason takes his kids to eat samplers at Costco. I used to go to Costco for samplers. It's been a long time. But samplers, you know, there's a little bit, there's a little bit on the plate. There's a little bit on the plate here. He gives us a list of about seven or eight things. He's got some other lists through the Bible. There are other lists throughout the New Testament. We'll call it a vice list. These are bad things. Now, kids, if you don't know what all these things are, you don't even need to ask your parents. One day you'll just find out. Some of them are more obvious than the others. They are all flowing from earthly, Adam-like human passions. And they are all opposed to the God who benevolently made you. Get your conduct ready. Interesting here, even this vice list doesn't come as a list of to-dos. It comes as in the context of reasoning. The time has passed. Hey, you've done all this. You've spent enough time doing this stuff. It's almost a strange way to put it. Uh, he's reasoning with them. He's speaking to Gentiles, those who are pagans. They weren't in the people of God. They, they lived in this, this is how they lived. And now they have come to Christ and they've got to live an entirely different way. You spend enough time doing all these things. Here's some of the things that you live doing. Now, don't do those anymore. Plenty of time doing it. I think it's if you spend two minutes in the morning and two minutes in the afternoon brushing your teeth or the evening, I don't brush my teeth in the afternoon. 
Some of you brush your teeth more than I do. I brush my teeth twice a day. It's good enough for me. It might be good enough for you. Four minutes a day, it's 24 hours a year. I had to do the math on that. It really is. It's a day a year brushing my teeth. You shouldn't brush your teeth any more than twice a day and no more than two minutes in the morning and the evening. Don't make me do the math on you. Well, that's a lot of time. Well, how much time has gone by where before you came to Christ, you gave yourself to lawlessness and to human passions and sensuality and drunkenness and pick your, pick your list as you rummage around the Bible. They're all on it. Well, enough time has gone by. You've put enough of your life, your long life into that. Spend the rest of it on, on God and his, and his will. Which we have more than a list here. We've got compulsions. He's compelling us. You, Christian, have a new purpose. Notice, no longer living for human passions, but for the will of God. Not merely according to, he could have said that, But four, you have a new purpose if you're in Christ. It's your old purpose. It's what you were made for, but now you've been remade in order to fulfill it. A new purpose. Let's survey the landscape of these human passions here in in Peter's letter. 1 Peter 1, 14. Just listen to what he calls them. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 18, we were ransomed from from your futile ways, which you inherited from your, your forefathers. And you were ransomed with not perishable things, but with the precious blood. Of Christ. And 2 verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Ignorant ways. Futile ways. Ways that wage war against your soul. These are our human human passions and in our sin we we believe the promises that they hold out we think that this passion will lead to something good for us and even if there is a fleeting pleasure involved there it separates us from the living God and now in Christ we know better so don't live for your human passions any longer but for the will of God friends your human passions are dehumanizing When you live for your human passions, it's like living like an animal. God doesn't give the animals moral commands and judge them on the other side for how that he does you because you're made in his image. You're a human being. What a pleasure to be a human being. Don't go acting like an animal. No, God's will is rehumanizing. You've been made new and this is the new way. Human passions are ignorant. It's like you're, you're living in blindness and darkness. 
But God's will is living in an informed way, a way that is wise in accord with how things actually are. Human passions are futile. God's will is fulfilling if for any reason that you have his smile. Importantly, your human passions are against you. So teenager, discovering your human passions, dimensions of your human passions, your imagination is firing and God has made you to unite with another. God has made you with passion, even sexual desires. But remember who you are as a sinner in Adam and that your desires are corrupt and they're futile and they're ignorant and they're destructive and they're at war against you within your very soul, within your very heart are desires that are attacking you. So recognize that and don't believe the lie that you are your desires and that your desires are your identity and that you're living a lie if you're not living according to your desires. And if you're struggling with these things, praise the Lord for that because the struggle is a sign that you are in Christ. You are at war. You are vulnerable. Arm yourself with a proper understanding about the times these temptations and trials are temporary. They are productive for to the extent that you hold fast to Christ, your faith is purified and you are made stronger. Your passions are at war against you. God's will is for you. Get your mind ready. Get your conduct ready. Christian, those are some things to prepare. Now something to prepare for We've considered what following Christ demands in this war. We've now turned to the matter of the costs. So get ready for the costs. Verse four. When we think of the costs at warfare, our mind goes to economic costs, the costs of life. It's interesting here. The matter Peter turns to is the social cost. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. No, oh, the social cost. Don't underestimate it. All of us are vulnerable. The young, middle schoolers, you're the least self-aware of this. That's why it's the most obnoxious and it's so most obvious that you're following your peers. Adults just get more sophisticated about this. Adults are copy, constantly copying and pasting what we should do, how we should think, how we should talk. The changing social mores over many decades would, would show you that. We are all social creatures. We love the approval of other people. We like to fit in. For as much as we say we like to be different, actually, to the extent we're different, we're just being different like other people. We love to fit in. We we're born walking according to the course of the world. And as the world changes, so we change with it. But the world is the world. Don't underestimate your vulnerability to peer pressure, to what's in the heads of the people around you, what they're thinking about you. We all care about what people think about us and what people say about us. And that's actually our kryptonite. 
It's Satan's secret weapon, an invisible weapon. He entices us in this direction or that with the approval of our friends and family and neighbors. Oh, we can desire for them to approve of us, but it is not our driver. We seek the Lord's approval. With respect to this, they're surprised. It moves in two steps. First, surprise. If you're a new Christian and you've just been saved out of life in the world and these kinds of things and your own human passions, pray you're running fast with the good news back to your friends, but you will find that some will reject you. They'll be shocked. They cannot imagine how you can't think like they did and go about life like they did. And maybe you're on the other side of this right now and saying, I think you people are crazy. I'm coming to church, but you're nuts. Well, the Bible has a category for you. It's, it's right here and it has a message for you. Join us. But it has a message for Christians and that is pay no regard to their opinion of you. So if we have a mature Christian in the room, you can't get to them. You can't ruffle them. And if you haven't been able to and that has perplexed you, this is why. They have their eyes opened They've gone from ignorance to light, from death to life, from dehumanizing passions to rehumanizing, life-giving will of God. It moves from surprise and then they, and then they malign you. Prude, bigot, and there are other names. They turn morality into immorality. Evil and good become inverted so that by not doing these things and not affirming these things and not affirming those who find their identity in these things and call these things good, you are yourself now the immoral one, the outsider, the evil one in our age. Have eyes to see what is going on. Give yourself to God's mind and his will arm yourselves friends with this way of thinking you will be tempted to do two things when you are maligned the first thing you're tempted to do is to make it go away by joining in you'll be tempted to join in with these things because they're pleasureful in the first place fleeting pleasures but pleasureful well you'll be tempted to join in with them so that you won't have their disapproval. How many people have fallen into such sad circumstances in sin because they didn't want to let someone down or meet their, their disapproval and rejection? Be ready for it, Christian. You will be rejected by living within the acceptance of God and his will. The second thing you'll be tempted to do is malign back. And we've already been around the block on this. Last week, Peter gave us a whole paragraph on this matter of returning evil for evil. Well, here, one of the evils that's committed against us is that we're maligned. They're surprised at you. Well, that's one thing. But then they malign you for not joining with them. So Christian, expect in this age to be maligned and then don't you malign back. And where do you get the power not to malign back? Not to speak evil and commit evil against those who commit evil against you. Well, here's one place. We turn to verse 5 and 6. 
they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So we've, we've had some things to prepare, our minds and our conduct, and something to prepare for. You must be ready for the costs, Christian. And now it's time to get out of the way, verses 5 and 6. Rules of engagement. There's some things you don't do. Here's something you don't do. You don't repay evil for evil. You do not malign back. Now, there's all kinds of reasons for us to be profoundly frustrated in this age. And as energetic American citizens to be engaged in the electoral process and shaping legislation and campaigning and all the rest. All of that is different. All of that is in bounds. Maligning and committing evil against our neighbors is firmly out of bounds. That concerns how we talk about our neighbors. It concerns how we talk to our neighbors. It concerns what we do to our neighbors. You've got some options when you're maligned. You can take care of it by maligning back. Don't do that. Maybe a second option is just don't care. That's really hard. And if you've got those two options, you're going to have a hard time. He's not saying don't care. He's not saying it's not important. He's not saying it doesn't hurt to be rejected, to be put out, to lose a relationship, a job. No, what he's saying is not don't care, but let God take care of it. Let him take care of it. And if you're in the middle of oppression and being maligned and rejected, this will come as a comfort, even if it feels foreign to you at the moment. You need to remember this. Apparently, we need it. Peter says they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So getting out of the way, letting God do his work, means letting God be the judge of those who seek to judge and to harm and to take from you in this age. He's the judge, and he's ready to judge the living and the dead, and he's the only one who's just enough to do that. And so take comfort in knowing that any sin against you will be handled one day. Which leads me to the second thing. Not only is his judgment just, and so we're to trust his judgment, but we're to trust as well and equally his timing. That's what I think verse 6 is about here. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. It's an obscure kind of passage. The, The Christians in the first century were just figuring out how this worked. Remember, Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. You're converted. Your family's converted. You're believing in Jesus who promised life from the dead. And your mom dies. And you bury her. And you're the mockery of the town because you believe in some resurrected Lord. You believe in Jesus raised from the dead. (laughs) Oh, and what about your mom? I mean, how's it going for you guys? So I'm engaged in this life of debauchery and following my human passions and having a a great old time. Uh, And you're saying that's a bad idea and you're talking about, you all are judged just the same. We all die the same. I'm watching it happen. This put Christians in a strange place. They needed teaching and instruction. And that's all this is. The gospel was preached to those who are dead before they died. 
This is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. So your mom is dead? Well, the gospel is preached to her before she died. She died in the flesh, but she's alive in the spirit. God will judge in his own time in his own way. And death is not it for the Christian. No, one day God will judge the living and the dead. Do you see how seeing what this really means helps us, gives us courage in the face of our difficulties? We've solved a little puzzle. It's good enough for me. I think that's precisely what he's saying. This isn't anything like the gospel preached to those who have died for a second chance after death. Take no encouragement from that. There's nothing like that anywhere else in the Bible. That is not what he's saying. Friend, if you're not in Christ, turn now. You could get hit by a car on your way home and that'll be it. There's no second chance and there's no preaching the gospel to the dead. If you've been preached that, it's just not here. What Peter is saying is there is a judge who will judge the living and the dead. And after you die, you will be judged by him. And Christian, take courage in that. For God will sort all this stuff out in the end. And you know what that allows you to do? That allows you to face your trials and your troubles with hope. You don't have to settle the score. Don't malign back. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't give in and live according to your human passions. Both of these temptations are real for us. When the Berlin Wall went up, it was a matter of time before you'd look on the, on the east side and it would be quiet and dull and drab, lifeless, as a people suffered under a murderous and repressive, repressive regime. But on the other side, on the west, which is where we ought to want to live, it is not as though freedom on its own in this age, apart from Christ, saves. For you had neon lights and the sexual revolution in only a number of years. And all kinds of debauchery under the sun on the West, even with all of its life and energy and movement and all kinds of gospel spreading and good things. But it is to say there is only one king who is truly righteous, who brings about true righteousness in his people. You and I, friends, belong to that king. So wherever we find ourselves under whatever regime in this age, let us not give ourselves to murder and maligning and repression. And let us not give ourselves to our human passions, which express themselves in human beings and in human societies in all places in different ways. But let us be a different society all together for we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for arresting us with this reminder that we are at war for speaking truthfully about our human passions that those desires we find in ourselves because we are fallen in sinful wage war against us and for calling us to arm ourselves today. Would you make us a church that is armed and ready with the same way of thinking that our Lord had and that we would not give in to or bite back against those who malign us that we would be firmly, happily, easily resistant to this secret weapon of social ostracization. 
that we would care above all things about your smile and your approval and that we would entrust ourselves to you as our benevolent God and creator and redeemer and to your will alone. And that when that is especially hard, Father, help us to look forward to the day when Jesus comes back to save us and put all of this to a good end and even help us to take comfort in the truth that he will judge the living and the dead. In Christ's name we pray, amen.